I didn't see anyone else walking in. I always try to wait to make sure that there's, uh, just to get started once everyone gets in. So uh, we want to open with a word of prayer, and, uh, and then we will get started officially. Father, thank you for tonight, for your goodness and your grace. Father, thank you for the church and your truth that, that explains to us how to be the church and uh, what we uh, are to be. And we thank you that Christ is the head of the church, that we have a, a head that is perfect, that is righteous, uh, that guides, directs, and loves us. So Father, tonight, would you open up your word afresh and new to us, uh, that we might gain more understanding uh, of what the church is and who we are to be. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to welcome you to the Sunday evening teaching. We're getting about a three-week late head uh, start on this. And we usually start, you know, right after Labor Day, but we, had a, we were hosting a concert, uh, a choral group from outside. I'm not even sure. I wasn't here, so I don't even know exactly what it was. Um, but they were that first week uh, after Labor Day. And then, of course, last week was the incredible project experience uh, that we were able to experience. And uh, so we're getting started uh, tonight. The topic that we're going to look at for the next eight or nine, ten weeks will go up at least to Thanksgiving, maybe a week or two after that, we'll have to see, is this idea of the church. Uh, when you hear someone talk about the church, what comes to your mind? Body of believers, people, building, Jesus, all of those answers are right. Sunday, Okay, um, when we think of the word church, in scripture it is used a number of different ways. And for us it is used different ways as well, ways that the Bible doesn't even use it. We've defined church a certain way. Um, the word for church in the New Testament is ekklesia. That's the Greek word. We get ecclesiastes uh, from that uh, uh, and so that original use of that word ecclesia means to call out. Okay, so the church is, are the ones that are called out. Called out of what? The world. They're called out of the world. They're called out of sin. They're called out of worldly thinking, which means we're also then called in to something. We're called in to Christ. We're called in to heavenly thinking, uh, to think as we said yesterday morning, for those of you that, that might have been here for the uh, Chuck Colson webcast, uh, we need to begin thinking ethically. Uh, that we many times don't think ethically, we just, many times, honestly, we don't think. Uh, we just do what comes natural. We do the first thing that pops into our head. Um, and so the church is ecclesia. It is called out of the world and called into Christ. Uh, kind of like uh, the idea of the word is a town crier who would call all of the citizens out of their homes to assemble in the marketplace for some official business. And so the church is being called out of, from their homes, from their life, called out into the marketplace for some official business. And Jesus is the one doing that calling. Um, turn with me to Acts chapter 19. <clears throat> Acts 
Acts chapter 19, verse 23. Sometimes it is, in, in this uh, passage here, it's translated in the NIV as an assembly. And so you can kind of get that idea. About that time in verse 20, uh, chapter 19, verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. Now, the way was Christianity. That was the term they were using. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So all of his followers were called the way. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, uh, brought in a, in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them together along with the work, workmen in related trades and said, men, you know, we receive a good income from this business. Now, that was the business that they were making idols. Uh, they were crafting idols out of wood and, and, and uh, silver and things like that. And so he drew all these craftsmen together and said, you know, we've, we've got a pretty good business going here, creating these idols for the temple of Artemis, which was a very large temple uh, in Ephesus. Called them together and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray, astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in, and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. I don't know how upset he was over that. Mostly that first line, we're going to lose our business. That was the upsetting part. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. People seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. That's the assembly. The ecclesia was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews pushed Alexander to the front. Some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense for the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, two hours. City clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want it, you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. And after he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. So you kind of get the picture. Here they are. They're wanting to raise this problem for Paul and his traveling companions. And so they have gone through the streets, hollering, yelling, and drawing everyone out as the town crier, calling the city out into the marketplace to decide what they do. That is the original use of the word ecclesia, as, as the town crier drawing people out uh, to an assembly. It's also used in the Septuagint. Now, who knows what the Septuagint is? 
first five books of the Old Testament is the Pentateuch. What is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is simply the Greek translation of the Old Testament. About 150 years before Christ, uh, 70, that's where the Septua, Septa, means seven, 70 men came together and translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek because that was the common language of the day, which is why the New Testament's also written in Greek. And so these men, when they translated it, they, ecclesia was used in reference to the assembly or the congregation of the Israelites. So in the Old Testament, when the Israelites would come together, they were the ecclesia. They were the assembly, the called out ones, um, especially when they gathered for worship. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30, and Moses recited the words of this song from beginning to end in the hearing of the whole ecclesia of Israel, the whole assembly of Israel. Um, so the nation of Israel is kind of a type of church. They even saw it. The Septuagint, the writers of the Septuagint even saw it that way, that Israel had a covenant with God, much like the church today has a covenant with God. We have a new covenant. Jesus said, you know, this, when he was uh, administering the first Lord's Supper, uh, the first communion with the bread and the wine, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood. And so uh, we, we too have, the Israel had the old covenant, we have the new covenant. Um, they were God's chosen. They were the people of God. Um, oftentimes in the New Testament, the church is called the chosen, the elect. And so there's very, a lot of very uh, similarities between uh, Israel and the church in the New Testament, the, the called out ones. Bonnie. I think Artemis is Diana, yes, um, that they were one and the same. Uh, one would be a Greek word, one would be a Roman word. And it says Diana. Yeah, Artemis and Diana, it's the same person, same temple, um, same goddess that was worshipped. So in the original use, it's called out ones. In the Septuagint, it kind of started to make it a congregation that had gathered for worship. And in the New Testament, it has a number of different translations or ideas behind that word ecclesia. All of them church, but they all refer to something different. Um, one is the local church. Uh, within the local church, there were three different types of local churches. There was the first one is the house church. This would be the smallest of the churches, uh, smallest of the understandings of that word. Um, Romans chapter 16, Paul was writing uh, to the Romans, the church in Rome, and he said, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. And so we have to get a picture in the New Testament of not churches like this, but churches in homes, house churches, because there was none of this. Uh, the closest thing they had was the temple, which they still went to to worship. Uh, they would still go to the synagogue and worship uh, God, but their, their teaching and all happened in these small house churches. Uh, so when Paul would write a letter, when he wrote the letter to Romans, he sent it on and he wanted to make sure that it got to the house church that was meeting with Priscilla and Aquila, as well as the other house churches throughout Rome. 
in the whole Roman province. Um, so we have all of these house churches. Now, what do we call them today? Small groups. Uh, we don't, some people still call them house churches. Um, we call them small groups. So when you picture small group, think church. I'm going to church at so-and-so's house. Uh, that, that's how we want to be, begin thinking. That was one of the uses in the New Testament. Um, second use is a local church meeting. First uh, Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18 said, In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Now, who was that written to? The Corinthians. The Corinthian church. Probably several house churches that would from time to time come together and in this case, to celebrate communion, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they would come together, several house churches. And Paul was directing that the way they were coming together and doing communion was inappropriate. Uh, they were making a, a drinking fest out of it. People were coming and getting drunk during communion. Um, and he said, that's not a good thing. Uh, and so what we have here is a number of house churches coming together to one location known as the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church would be all of the house churches in that city. Now, what do we call that today? We call it Community Alliance Church. That we are a church that comes together on Sunday when all of the small groups come together to worship uh, as a body, a bigger body, a community of believers. So we have the small house church, we have the little bit bigger uh, church that we would call assembly, and then we have a group of local house churches in an area. Acts chapter 9, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. So the church throughout Judea, okay, what do we know that as today? What would, how would we look? Because this is a, an area, okay? This has gone beyond just a city. We have house churches, and then we have all the house churches in a city. Now we have all the cities in an area. A district, a district uh, is what we would look at that. We are the Western Pennsylvania district, okay? Now, Interestingly enough, I heard someone say denominations. There aren't any in the, in the New Testament. You won't find them. Um, because it's, and, and this is, I'm going to go out on a limb. I probably ought to take the microphone off because I was drilled in my ordination interview when I made this statement. I'll make it again. I'll hold to it. Denominations are not the will of God. Because every denomination was started because two men couldn't get along. And so they split. And we had the Methodist, and then the First Methodist, and then the United Methodist. Well, who's first? And why are you calling yourselves united? Because you're not. Okay, we have the alliance that split from the Presbyterian Church because A.B. Simpson had an idea on how to do missions. And the people uh, that he reported to, because he was a Presbyterian pastor, 
didn't want to do it that way. So he said, okay, we'll go over, we'll do it this way, and the Christian Missionary Alliance was started. Um, so we don't really have a picture of denomination in Scripture. It's not there uh, because it just didn't happen. There was one church, God's church, um, and they were area churches, they were city churches, they were house churches. Um, and those are the three understandings, three pictures that I want to say. They were all church. And so I think for some of us, we may need to broaden our understanding of church and get rid of just, just number two, the number two definition of, of, of a, a city church, and, and broaden it a little to understand that, you know, small group is church. Uh, I, I expect the same things out of our small group that I expect out of church. Our small groups operate in the exact same mode that churches operate, or at least they're supposed to. Same expectations, same functions. Uh, people use their gifts within the small group. In fact, when, as we said, most of the New Testament was written to small groups, um, those house churches, and that's how they were to function. Um, and so you kind of get a, get a picture and then of the, of the whole church, you know, not just the alliance, but yes, Methodist, yes, Presbyterian, yes, you know, go on down the list, Baptist, all the others, you know, they're all church. When God looks at church, that's what he sees. And I can't help sometimes but think that when Paul said there, to the Corinthian church, there are divisions among you, that some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, some follow Cephas, and then there are those holier-than-thou people that say, well, we follow Christ. That, that is the same thing happening now? Well, I follow Baptist. Well, I follow Methodist. Well, I follow Alliance. Well, I follow... And God's like, you know what? We're one. It's one church. And I think there's a day coming. Let me just wax prophetic for a little bit. I think there's a day... This, I've left my notes. You noticed how far away I'm getting? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a day coming when those lines are going to have to be torn down. When we're going to have to go back to one church. Because we're not going to be able to function as split little entities and denominations. It's already happening overseas. There's already, I mean, when, when an alliance missionary goes overseas, they link up with the Methodists that are there and the Baptists that are there, and they start doing ministry together. Because that's the only way they can get it done. And I think a day is coming that that's going to be the case in the United States as well. If the direction we're heading, we continue to head to where God is taken out more and more and more and more and more rights of the church are refused, we're going to have to pull together. And we can't be this, that, and the other thing. We have to be one church, one people of God. Okay. I'm back to my notes, off my soapbox, ready to go. Uh, there's another understanding, too, that we have to understand, and that's not only the local church, but there is the universal church. And when I say universal church, Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints. With all the saints. What is that? That's the saved people. Those are all, that's the church. Okay, That's not just the church in Ephesus, but all the saints 
everywhere. Ephesus, Galatia, Thessalonica, all of the places uh, throughout that area in the then known world. Um, With all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. You see, when we use the word church, we mean house church. We also mean city church. We also mean area church. And we also mean universal church, all believers for all generations. Okay, so we have to better define what word church we're using when we use it. Because it could be any one of those four things. House, city, area, or universal. And a lot of times when we say church, we we have to understand that it's all believers, past and present. And as far as God's concerned, future, because he can see that, we can't. So Abraham, member of the church? Yes. Moses, member of the church? Yes. All of the Old Testament believers are members of the church, the universal church as we understand it. Their faith uh, saves them the same way as our faith saves us. They believed in something that was yet to come. We believe in something that's already happened, but it's the same thing, Christ on the cross. So it's the same faith. So it's the same church. So understand that when we use the word church, it could be any one of those four, and rightly so. I don't want us to limit it to this, that it's much bigger than that, and it's much smaller than that. It's the church. The true church. Right. Right. We also use that word somewhat flippantly because when Paul uses it, it is the true church, the true believers. Um, And so when we come together as Community Alliance Church, I understand that there are non-church people in the pews on Sunday morning. That just coming here doesn't make us a part of the church. Believers. Okay, you've heard the thing... Going to church doesn't make you a believer any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger, okay? Just coming doesn't do it, that there, that there is a, a transformation of faith that takes place, and that's the true church. That's the true believer, and so that's really the definition, and, and again, I think we need to watch how we use the word church because sometimes we use church and include non-believers in that use of the word, and we can't. That's a wrong use of the word church. It's only the believers uh, in there, the true believers. Now, there's a modern use that you will not find in Scripture anywhere, and that we've already mentioned is the building. Okay, I'm going to church. Well, where do you go to church? Community Alliance Church, 800 Mercer Road. That's where my church is. Um, Not true. That's not a biblical use of the word. 
Uh, it is a modern use of the word, but it's not a biblical use of the word. Um, people would ask, and we kind of play around with this as pastors, because most all the pastors we understand and we joke around about it a little bit. They'll say, well, where's your church? It's all over. I couldn't tell you where it's at right now. You know, a lot of them are at work. Some of them are at school. Uh, we, you know, and then we laugh and you know what I mean? I said, yeah, I know what you mean, but I also know what you said, what you asked. Uh, you want to know where the building is, where the church comes to. Uh, and so, uh, the church really did not have buildings until when? Anybody know? Good church history people? I'm not a good church history person. I had to look it up. About three or 400 A.D. is really the first church. That's when Constantine, who was the then emperor of Rome, uh, became a Christian. He was the first Christian ruler of the Roman Empire. And he made going to church, worshiping God, being a Christian, fashionable. And so he donated, he put a lot of time and energy and resources into making churches for the church to meet. And again, (laughs) come over here. I don't know how good that was for us because then it got us to where we moved out of the world and into the fortress. And we've been operating, we operate out of a fortress mentality that we need to come here and get out of the world and, and it's a scary place in the world. Well, that's where the first church was. Those first believers, they were in the world. And when they met, they met in an open area or they'd go to the synagogue and they would worship and then they would meet. And, you know, they, they, they were out there in the world. And we tend to isolate ourselves and in our church buildings. And, uh, and I think that's actually worked against us over the last 1,800 years or so uh, of developing that fortress mindset. Um, And so when we talk about the church, it's helpful for us to determine which church we are talking about. House church, city church, area church, universal church. What are we meaning when we're saying church? Okay. Now, what I want to do with the the rest of our time together is I want us to, to start painting different pictures of the church because I think it's helpful if we can find some similarities. Jesus did this all the time through parables and kind of object lessons. We do it with kids a lot with object lessons. You know, we give them an object and then we relate a, a, a spiritual story to it to kind of help them understand. I think for us to, to begin to understand what the church is and how the church is supposed to operate, we need to paint some pictures. And so I think I've given you 11. I think I remember deleting the number 12. 11. Uh, Word pictures or, or pictures that we can, can kind of latch on to. And I hope one or two of these begins to make sense. Now, we're going to unpack over the next eight or nine weeks uh, lessons. We're going to unpack this idea of church. And we're going to look at, uh, uh, let me just give you some of the topics. We're going we're to look at characteristics of the church at church discipline. We're going to look at the ordinances of the church. We're going to look at baptism. We're going to look at uh, communion and the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're going to look at worship. In fact, Justin's going to come and lead that night. He's going to teach the, the kind of the theology of worship, the, the biblical understanding of what worship is, what it should be, and what we are trying to do here uh, to make worship happen. Um, we're going to talk about evangelism, about the idea of going out, both locally and globally. I'm still working on Bob to, Thomas to 
you know, twist his arm a little bit uh, to come in and lead us in the, uh, in the missions aspect, the, the, the global. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the organization of the church and some of the things uh, that we are to be doing as a church so that we get this understanding of who we are, that we're not just Community Alliance Church. We're not just believers in Christ, that there is something much bigger than that that we are a part of. And I want us to begin seeing what that big, big thing is. Um, First word we want to look at, first picture we want to draw is that of a household. Okay, picture the church as a household. Now, maybe your household isn't the best household to picture the church after. I don't know. Um, You know, chaotic, uh, crazy, uh, you know, maybe that's... but household was one picture that they used in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter 4. Paul used this, uh, this idea a lot. He said, So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Now, okay, can anyone pick where the household... <laughs> Some of you are going, I think you read the wrong one. No, that's the right one. The picture of the household is in there. It says that men ought to regard us as servants of Christ who have been given a trust. That's the household. That's the servants of a household. That's the managers of a household. And so we as the true believers have been given a trust in God's household. We are servants of his household. Okay? That, that we have this trust that we need to carry out, we must prove faithful with. Uh, Paul uses this word picture a lot in his writings. He often refers to the believer as his dear children. The idea that, that he was the kind of the master of the house and that, that the others were, were his dear children. Uh, we refer to one another as brothers and sisters. Uh, that, that's scriptural. Uh, a lot of times Paul would say brothers. Uh, you know, that, that idea of household, of family, Um, he sees the church as those servants, as those managers of the household of God. Now, if you were a servant in a house, what would you think? What's your relationship to the owner of the house? Obeying? Like a slave, they didn't use that word, they used servant. What he says goes. What is it? Pleasing. We, we want to please the master of the house. And now picture that you've been trusted. You've been entrusted with everything in the house. The master's funds. He's going away and he's leaving you in charge of his household. What kind of a responsibility do you have to that? None of it's yours, but you've been given full trust of it. Okay, God has done that with us, with the church, the, the body of believers, that he has left, Jesus has gone, the master of the house has left, and he has entrusted everything to us, his servants, his managers uh, of the house. And so we are responsible to take care of everything that is God's, uh, of what is his. And so we need to begin looking at church as that, my responsibility. Whose responsibility is it? Every believer's responsibility. Again, we have removed that responsibility and placed it all where? Whose responsibility is it for the church? 
pastors or janitors, <laughs> facilities manager. But we have done that. Many, many have abdicated their responsibility as servant to the manager. That's not right. That's poor steward. That's poor servant. That when the master comes back and says, how come all this isn't done? And us managers go, I don't know. We just couldn't get people to do it. He's not going to understand. And so that's why he's gifted. And we talked about it in the Holy Spirit last time we, we met, the la- when we went over the Holy Spirit, that he's gifted us all with different gifts and abilities with the expectation that we're going to use them as servants in his house. And if we're not using them as servants, then we're poor stewards. And when the master returns, we're going to have to give an account. You've seen that parable throughout Scripture too. That the master is going to return and we're going to have to give an account of everything that he has entrusted, gifted to us, and how we've used it. Now, there is uh, responsibility, and I think more so on pastors, because it is our job as, as leaders to make sure that everyone else is being taken care of, is being fed, is being nourished, is being uh, encouraged, is, is being challenged. That's our responsibility. So if God comes back and he says, Ted, what have you done? Have you challenged the people? Yes, I have. Have you, have you cast a vision for them to, 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 to get behind the vision of reaching lost? Yes. Locally and globally? Yes. Well, how come some of them haven't gotten it? I have no idea. That's on you, not on me. And so each of us has that responsibility as a, as a servant in the household. 1 Timothy chapter 3. He must manage his own family well. These are the qualifications for an elder or an overseer, a pastor in the church. Um, It said he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Now, what's the, the, the idea is that God's church is being compared to the family, not the household. And so elders, pastors, overseers, they need to be able to manage their family because that is a microcosm of the church. It's a picture of how the church operates uh, with that. Number two, uh, the church is a plowed field, okay? So get that picture in your head. Get rid of the household. I'll get a plowed field in front of you. First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 and 9. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Of course, okay, God's building's coming up. God is the overseer, and the church is what? If God is overseeing the field, what is the church? What role do we play according to Paul here? We're the farmer. Some of us plant. Some of us water. Some of us harvest. God's the one that's making it grow. Can God make it grow if nobody plants? He can, yes. Does he? Usually not. If no one is planting, 
seed, then there's nothing for God to make grow. What if everyone's planting and no one's watering? Again, it's, there's nothing going to grow. So you see, we all have that responsibility then to plant and to sow. Now, what does it mean to plant seed? Spread the word. We're, we're building relationships. Again, we are intentional about our relationships. Uh, you're going to hear this a lot, that, that we are a church transformed by faith, growing in wisdom, and uh, intentional in relationships and service. So that we want to be a church that is intentional with where we're planting seed. Coworkers, neighbors, family, those that are not believers, those that are outside the definition of church. That we want to be planting seed in them. We want to be putting the word in them. We want to be living the word out in front of them so that they can see that there's a difference. They can see that, that there is something more to life than what they have experienced. That there is real life to be lived beyond what they have experienced. And they only get that if we plant it. Well, now, what does it mean to water? Disciple. Once that seed has been planted and God begins to cause it to grow, we need to water it. We need to keep tending it. We need to keep taking care of it, making sure that it's getting the nourishment that it needs through the water. And whose responsibility is that? Everybody's. It's the church's responsibility. He's using the illustration as Paul planted Apollos watered, God made it grow. But that could have just as easily been there were times when Apollos planted and Paul watered and God made it grow. And so there are times that you need to be planting and there are times that you need to be watering. That you need to be bringing someone along. You need to be nurturing them and caring for them. Discipling them is the word we use today. Helping them to grow so that they too can be fruitful, bear fruit, plant seed, water, and continue the cycle. Um, that's everyone's responsibility because we are a plowed field. Okay, that's the idea, the picture that we get from the field. Um, and so we can expect growth. I expect growth out of you. I expect you to be growing. I expect to be able to see that growth. We are working right now on a tool that will help us measure that growth. Uh, and, and so that we know that, that, that we are growing, that, that we are able to to say, yes, we're planting, we're, we're watering, and God is growing. But the, some of the onus is on you as well, to put yourself in the place to grow, to put yourself in the place to be watered. Um, and that's why you're here tonight, I'm trusting. Number three, uh, the church is a building. Now, this is not, we just said that the building used, this is figurative building, not actual literal building. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, turn with me there. Some of these passages were too long to type and put in the notes, so uh, we're going to look and read them. Uh, For we are God's fellow workers, what we just talked about. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, Paul says, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it, but each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or stubble, his work will be shown uh, for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. 
it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has build, built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. <clears throat> he himself will be saved, but only as one escapes, escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Now, we think of the body as the temple of God, that our body is the temple of God. That's actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when it talks about our physical bodies being the temple of God, where the Holy Spirit lives. What he's talking here is the plural you. You, church, are the temple of God. You are the building of God. And, and the foundation is what? Jesus Christ. And Paul, whenever Paul went, Paul went where Christ had never been preached before where people didn't know who Christ was. And he began building that foundation of who Jesus is. And then anyone like Timothy who came in after Paul and began to to minister to the church there, Timothy was sent to Corinth, um, to those churches there, he began to build on that foundation of who Jesus is. And he began adding people to that building. Um, And and now uh, uh, what's the warning in this. Anyone who tries to destroy the church, the Lord will destroy. Um, And he says, be careful then how you build. Okay? Which means we need to have right motives in how we're building the church. We need to have right motives in, in how we're interacting with the church. That it's not my way, it's God's way, it's, it's God's building. And we need to make sure that we're using gold, silver, okay, not wood, hay, or stubble, because that burns up just like that. So that when, when the fire comes, when the testing comes, when, when life is over and Jesus returns, all of that work is going to be tested. And, and, and it will be revealed whether it was gold or silver or wood, hay, or stubble. And so we need to be very careful about how we are working, the materials that we are using to work with. Uh, We want to put the right people in the right place. Uh, I don't want to put someone who's wood, and that's not saying it's a bad thing because you can build with wood, but someone who's maybe not as mature, not as solid in their faith. I want to make sure I don't put them in a position where we really need a steel girder, a steel beam, or, or, or gold, I don't want to put straw. I don't want to put a new believer in a place where I really need someone solid. And if you are a new believer, what's your part of your responsibility? Become gold. Become gold. Mature. Grow. So that the things that we're doing are are lasting things. Uh, And so we want to become mature, growing believers. Uh, in that, so that we make sure that the works that we're doing, the service that we are performing for the Lord, will last. It takes right motives, it takes right vision, it takes a right understanding of who God is and who we are, that He is God and we are not, and that it's ultimately His church that's universal, okay? That, that our city church here, of Community Alliance Church is God's church. 
And so each one of us has a responsibility to seek what does God want me to do within Community Alliance Church? What does God want me to do within the bigger, far-reaching global church? Because I have responsibilities there as well. Be very careful then how you build so that on that day it will last. But we need to be mindful of what we're doing. And yes, the warning is not just be careful how you build, but don't destroy it. That, that we can undermine. I've seen it happen. I, I was an intern. I was doing my internship for college and in my home church. Never would I ever suggest anyone ever do an internship in a home church. Uh, the church split uh, right down the middle during my internship. And you know the hardest part of it? It was my family, my mom and my dad. Didn't cause the split, but it was them that they left. And rightly so. They decided that the Bible was, didn't need to be preached anymore, didn't need to be taught. We were going to use other books bring other teachings in and let's look at what some of the other things are and and my mom and dad my dad stood up and said that's not right we can't do that and the pastor said well this is what we're going to do for a time and 30 people walked out about a third of the church left i was still doing my internship (laughs) i couldn't leave uh that was a rough last two months of my internship um because they took the power away, the Bible. I couldn't use that anymore. Um, and so it was just kind of bide your time until you graduate. And uh, actually, out of that, my mom and dad started a house church. Uh, those 30 people, most about 20 of them, stuck together and met weekly in my mom and dad's living room. And they became the Roanoke Cornerstone Alliance Church um, from that. And uh, so God, God blessed them, moved, and, and continued to work within his church, those that were faithful. Um, so we are a building. Think of that, that we are building blocks, and how we are building is important. Um, number four, an olive tree. Romans chapter 11. If some of the branches have been broken off, and you, though a, valid, and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted. Now he's talking to Gentiles. Okay, if some of the branches of this olive tree have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. Okay, who's the root? Christ. Christ is the root of that. Some would see Abraham as the trunk. Uh, because that, that original, uh, the natural branches is, is, is an understanding of Israel. And, and the Jewish believers, as they accepted Christ, uh, they became that olive tree. And then we Gentiles, anyone here Jew? I don't want to assume we're all Gentiles. We Gentiles then were grafted in to that tree, um, which you can do if anyone knows trees. You can take, cut a slit in the branch, put another sapling or another piece of the a grafted branch in, and it will many times take hold and grow. Um, weirdest thing in the world, when I was down in, in Phoenix, I believe we were, um, with some friends, and their neighbors had a lemon orange tree. And they had taken an orange tree, and they had grafted in a couple lemon branches. Um, and so they were able to get lemons and oranges off of this tree. 
Um, that's the picture of this olive tree, that we are Jews and Gentiles grafted together, getting all of our, uh, all of our source, all of our, our nourishment from the root, which is Jesus Christ, but we're all working in the same, same thing. Now, go back to my little soapbox. We have Alliance branches and Baptist branches, and, you know, but we're all the same trunk, all the same root. Uh, true believers, okay? So that's the, the olive tree. Uh, now, again, what we can learn from this is that there is a danger of being cut off. Uh, the danger of being cut out, verses 21 and 22. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours. I'm in the wrong spot. Romans chapter 11. 21 and 22, when we think of this tree, the branches grafted in, consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Uh, Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? What do those verses mean? We got lemons and oranges, and we got branches apparently on the ground. Those Jews that were part of the olive tree were cut off when they disbelieved that Jesus was the Messiah. And what became the church was the true believers. And they had cut off those branches of the the Jews that did not believe. And then as that that tree began to grow, they grafted in Gentile branches, okay, into the tree. And he's saying, be careful that you don't think because you're in the tree, you're in, okay? That there's a possibility if you decide, you know what, this church thing's not for me. God is not. He has failed his promises. And you become unfaithful. You, You spurn his kindness you spurn his love, you too will be cut off. And who's not to say that that dead olive branch, that Jew, could not come to the realization that Jesus is the Messiah and be grafted back in. God can do all of those things. And so we are that olive tree, and we have a a responsibility then to bear fruit and work together with all of the other branches to bear fruit. Number five, that we are a pillar and foundation of truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3 If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Uh, This is kind of part of the building picture. You know, I love those old uh, plantation houses, the old houses that have the big pillars out front, you know, the big grand pillars. Well, that's kind of the church are those pillars, and, and that we are those pillars and the foundations of truth for the rest of the world. Because we are the only ones who hold the truth. We're the only ones that have the truth. We're the only ones that have a clue what truth is. Unbelievers don't. They can't. You know, this is why we're so big on the truth project. Because it it is truth. It is foundational belief in Christianity and what, what it is we believe. And so our responsibility then is to uphold the truth support the truth, and make the truth known. Uh, We are not guardians of the truth. We're not even defenders of the truth. The truth doesn't need defending. It's truth. It can stand on its own. But we have been given as servants of the household this responsibility to spread the truth, 
to reveal the truth, to live the truth, uh, to make it noticeable. Uh, and so we must be living it, uh, especially today. We live in a postmodern world. And you know what postmoderns say about truth? There is no such thing. There is no truth. The truth cannot be known. It's not real. Uh, if you were there at the, the ethical thing, it's really funny because that's a self-contradicting statement. There is no truth. Is that true? Absolutely. So you believe in absolute truth? No. There is no absolute truth. Are you sure? Absolutely. You see, that it's around and around. There is truth, and you can know it. God has revealed it to us. He's given it to us, and he has made us the, the guardians, in a sense. We, we are the proclaimers of that truth uh, to the rest of the world, who is slowly becoming less and less truthless. They're becoming truthless more and more, denying that there is truth. Number six, we are the city of God, or we're the new Jerusalem. Hebrews chapter 12, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now, that's not a, that was not a, a real place that the writer of Hebrews was talking about. He was talking to the Hebrew believers and saying, you have come to the church. You've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Again, we're a new covenant under his blood. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are citizens. Our heavenly home is where? Not here. There's a, there's a great song I just came across. I know, we're going to go over. You're used to it by now, right? You knew it was coming. There's a song by Aaron Schust. How many of you have heard Aaron Schust? You know who he is. He's a good Alliance kid. Uh, broke out on his own. He sings a, a song called Ever After. And he's singing it to like his little boy. And he says, um, oh, now I'm going to forget the words. I sing it all the time because it's hilarious. Um, I hope, but not, I, I, I want to be the, I don't want to be the one to let you down. I, I want to tell you the truth. It's time that you know. Okay. He said, would you believe me if I told you there's no such thing as Peter Pan? There's no such place as Never Never Land. I wish we all could have those tiny magic wings. And he says that, that, that there is no ever after here. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as happy ever after here. And so we can't live for an ever after here. Our happy ever after is there. And that's what we live for. That's what we need to be moving to, that we are this city of God. We are this new Jerusalem, that the church is seen as, as a place where people can come and hear the truth and, and receive the, the hope for a happy ever after, but not in this place. I don't want, I mean, the best thing the world can give me is, is mere penance to what awaits. And we need to live that way, that we are not, we are aliens and foreigners in this place um, we're, we're not to resemble the earthly too much. Uh, we should live like we are citizens of heaven. We should look foreign to people here on earth. We should act foreign to people here on earth. How do you tell if someone is not a citizen of, of this place? 
their language. They speak the different language. Our speech needs to be different. We need to speak different. I'm not saying in tongues, <laughs> but I'm saying our, our, our speech needs to be seasoned with truth, with love. People don't get that now. Our speech needs to be different because we're, we're citizens of a different place. How else do you know if someone's foreign, not from around here? Look, they're going to look a little different. Now, we may not be able to do that. We're not going to look necessarily different, but, but we're going to have some different customs. We're going to live life a little different. We're not going to get into all the things that the, the world gets into. And so in that sense, we're going to look different. We may dress a little different. Ethical. Like we, yesterday with Chuck Colson, we need to think ethical. We need to live ethical. That, that's a word that doesn't get used today at all. And so we are this new city of God. Five more. We're a people. Okay, I think that one's an easy one to, to understand. First Peter 2, 9 and 10, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Every one of us are priests. Every one of us are priests. We are a royal priesthood. And so some of what was uh, put upon the priest, as we understand priests in the Old Testament, we're a royal priesthood. We're a kingly priesthood. Every believer is a priest in the sense of, of Old Testament. We need to begin to see ourselves that way. Um, Ephesians 2.19, Cons- consequently that you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Build on the foundation. Boy, he put them all right here. Paul put them all right in this, in this one verse. Build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God's people, a holy nation set apart from the rest of the world, a special possession of God. You're a special possession. How many of you have special possessions in your house? Things that you treasure. Nothing wrong with that. How many of you display them? How many of you let grandchildren play with them? Probably not. (laughs) They're special. Those are grandma and grandpa's special. You know, my kids and my grandkids are going to wonder why they can't play with grandma's dolls. Because my mom or my... uh, mother-in-law is a doll collector and she's given two or three to Sarah and they're put away. Some of them are worth seven, eight, nine hundred dollars. Grandkids aren't playing with those. Okay. Um, those, those are special possessions. We take care of those. We are God's special possession. He's going to take care of us. We don't have a worry in the world because we're a special possession. We are a people, a holy nation belonging to God. Live your life with that attitude tomorrow and see if it doesn't change some things. A holy nation, a special possession of God. Number eight, these all deal with uh, Christ. We are the flock of Christ. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. John chapter 10 Uh, read through that. That's a great understanding of the sheep hear my voice. They recognize my voice. There are going to be people that come in and try to kill the sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing, but 
they're going to recognize the shepherd's voice. And so we are the flock. And, and sheep are really kind of stupid animals, really. Um, they can be led astray very easily. They wander off. Uh, they need, that's why the shepherd carries the staff, pull them back, correct them, as well as beat off the enemy to, to beat the wolves away. And so we see ourselves as God's sheep. He loves us. He's the good shepherd, Psalm 23. And he's going to care for us. But we have to make sure that we don't wander off, that we keep within earshot, that we recognize Jesus' voice. We recognize the Holy Spirit's tug within us, moving and directing within us. We are the flock. Jesus, God is our shepherd, protector, provider, leader. We're also the body of Christ. This is probably the, the best uh, or, or one that Paul really expounds on. In Romans chapter 12, he says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Again, this goes back to we all have a different function within the body. And if my foot decides to quit working, I limp. If a member of the body decides to quit working, we limp. We drag. We can't function the way God wants us to function. And he has given us within the true believers, within the believers of the body, everything we need to function the way he wants us to function. But if one of us decides, I'm not using my gift. One of us decides I'm not going to serve. I'm just going to come. I'm going to sit. I'm going to soak. I'm going to Sunday morning only. I'm going to take in, never give out. Then we're going to limp. We're not going to be able to do everything God wants us to do. Um, we are the body of Christ. Christ is the head. His job is to direct, to unify, to give life to the body. Our job is to function in the role that we were given. Whether we're the foot, the hand, the ear, the eye, the nose, the mouth, the back, whatever. One head. We are also the bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Uh, we, we talk about the marriage of the bride and the groom, and that it's not complete yet. Jesus is the groom. The church, the believers, are the bride. And that there's going to come a day where there's the wedding feast uh, and, and that you know, the bride and the groom are going to come together. Jesus is going to return. He's going to come for his bride. And we need to be, that, be ready that whenever it is that we can be a, a pure bride, uh, that, that we're not stained by the world, that we have kept ourselves pure for when the groom comes and that we are ready for his coming and we don't know when he will show up. Um, and so purity, submission, love for one another, love for Christ, service to the groom, that's what we're to be about, uh, to be that bride of Christ. And then the last one, John chapter 15, talks about branches of a vine, that the church gets its life from the vine. Jesus is the vine. You know, we learned the little song when we were little kids. He is the vine, I am the branches, his banner over me is love. I don't know, remember exactly how all the things go, but um, Jesus is the vine. And kind of like that olive tree and the root, that we get all of our life source from the vine. And that if we become detached from the vine, we're going to shrivel up, we're going to die, and we're good for nothing but the fire. Which means that if we're not producing fruit, if we're not 
And again, it's up to God to produce. We water, we plant, we water, God makes it grow. Okay? But if we're not planting in water and God's got nothing to make grow, then that branch is good for nothing and is in danger of being cut off. And so we have a responsibility, again, to be planting, watering. Um, sometimes we get pruned. God cuts us back a little. That's for our own good. Sometimes we get a little too full of ourselves. We get to moving a little too fast, a little too far ahead of God, and God cuts us back. Gives us a time. Sometimes you know, he slows us down sometimes to where we need to think about him. We've, we've run too far without really focusing upon the vine. And God slows us down sometimes. And we have to take that pruning for what it is, a chance to renew and, and, and re-energize and get reconnected to the vine and go out. And, and that branch that has been pruned back always produces so much more later uh, at the next season. And we're told that we're to abide in the vine. What does that mean? I don't know. I'll be honest with you. That word abide, my wife studied that word for 10 years and still hasn't totally figured it out. What does it truly mean to abide or live in Christ? And we can come up with, you know, we're dependent on him, we're relying on him. Yeah, but when I wake up tomorrow morning, what does it mean for me to abide in Christ? Uh, that's, a, that's a great word for you to look into to be praying about, Lord, am I abiding? Help me to abide. Help me understand how to live in you my life because it's going to look different for every one of us because we're all different members of the body and we have different functions. And so that life, that abiding is going to look different. Uh, but, but we need to be focusing on the fact that we are the branches and we're to abide, stay connected, stay in touch, live in Christ. Amen? Amen. I'm going to hang around for two or three minutes. Uh, if you guys have any questions, um, I was fortunate enough to convince my small group to meet here at the church instead of my house. So in fact, they're already meeting. They started at seven. So as soon as we're done here, I'll slide over and, and go to there. Ray. To continue in is another way to look at abide. Continue. So there is that constant, that going ongoing. Uh, moment by moment. What does it mean to be moment by moment connected? Uh, to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Uh, you know, there, there's so much depth to, to the Christian life, uh, to being the church, and uh, we're going to start to get into some of that depth. So let me pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, again, we're thankful for truth, uh, that you have saw, seen fit to give us truth, uh, to reveal it to us through general revelation, through nature, and yet you've given us the special revelation of your word and your Holy Spirit within us. So Father, I pray that, that we would begin to understand these pictures of the church and, and who we as believers, true believers, what our responsibility is, how we abide, how we continue, how we live in Christ moment by moment. Father, continue to unite us, uh, continue to cast vision to us, uh, continue to, to cause to grow, a lot, help us to know where to plant and where to water. Make us faithful, and we'll give you all the praise and the glory for the increase is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. One book that I would recommend, and it's thick, so don't let that scare you. Let the fact that Chuck Colson wrote it scare you. Uh, it'll be a little deep, too. This is not a quick read, but um, being the body... Is a, is a great book 
on what it means to be the church uh, today, written by Chuck Colson. So that, that's really the one book I recommend to you uh, as we look at the church. Okay, you're dismissed. We'll see you. Have a, have a great week. No, I'm not going to. The only reason I'd watch the game is because Mike Wallace is on my fantasy football team. So I'm hoping that whatever the Steelers score, he's the one in the end zone. I'm still rooting for the Colts to go 0-16 and get a first-round quarterback.